1: Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik.
4: Good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepke.
1: Well, we're looking again today at schools dominating the agenda. The government's plan to get all English children back in the classroom next month, suffering a blow after the Times reports that the study, the unpublished Public Health England study that the government's been using to justify this move, also finds that older pupils are... As likely to spread the virus as adults previously the argument had been that there's not much evidence that it spread within children therefore it's okay to get them back in one place but it looks like that there's a bit of a bit of a hole in that plan caroline
4: yeah although that is kind of kids basically over the age of 10 so you're largely talking about secondary schools here uh, but look i just want to weigh in on the importance of this subject so not just because i'm a household of two working parents and three children under the age of eight, but also because I know how many listeners are involved. And I can't quite believe we're in August, and it has taken us to get to this point for the government to realise perhaps the importance of it, because there are 17.7 million working households with children under 16 in the UK. That's out of only 21 million households. This is not a minority sport here.
1: It's a huge issue, isn't it? And coming from a household where there are no parents and no children, I doff my hat to each and every one of you. And then the other issue, of course, is the looming A-level potential crisis uh, that we get on Thursday, because in Scotland we've already had all of these results coming out, and you saw a mass standardisation, a model applied, because remember... People haven't taken their exams, so teachers have given them the grades, but those 124,000 of them were downgraded and we're using a a similar model in England. So there's a potential there for that to happen here as well. So we're keeping an eye on that too.
4: Yeah, absolutely. The the uh, Scottish have had to backtrack on this issue and try to do some repair work. Uh, right, well, let's bring in our guest for this part of the programme, Andrew Mitchell, Conservative MP for Sutton Coldfield and also previously the UK's International Development Secretary. Andrew, thank you for joining us again uh, today on Bloomberg Westminster. Let's start with the schools issue, shall we? I mentioned uh, just how important it is to parents. Um, the pressure now to get schools open, absolutely enormous. Why are we weeks out? and we still don't have a clear plan?
2: Well, good morning, Caroline. Good morning, Seb. And I very strongly agree in the importance of getting children back into school. And, you know, there is uh, huge uh, difficulty, not just experienced in Britain, but experienced all around the world on marrying the science together with the politics and ensuring that we do the right thing to minimise the disruption to people's uh, everyday lives, but also protect our health provision, protect uh, our overall society. So you've got an absolute priority of getting children back to school. I'm in mean, no doubt at all that that is right. Uh, it trumps almost everything else. And these things are about a balance of risk. And it seems to me that the risk of infection is second to the risk of very grave damage to a generation of school schoolchildren if, if we don't get them back into school. So we're feeling our way. I think that the government is right to make this an absolute priority, to insist that children are able to start with the new academic term. And we will have to manage that risk. But it is right, nevertheless, to take it on and get the children back to school.
1: But, Andrew, is the evidence not flawed somewhat here, given that the report has not been published and then from one day to the other seems to say a different thing to what we previously thought? We're not being given perhaps the full picture.
2: Well, the science changes, the judgment changes. And and I having talked to many of the head teachers in, in my constituency of South and Coalfield, I think that these decisions are best made there in the schools. They won't all be right. Some mistakes will be made. But with each head teacher and their staff and governors tasked with making the sure that the schools can operate as soon as the new academic term starts, that's the right way to handle this. And I know the enormous amount that's being spent on Uh, separating uh, space, making sure Mm -hmm. that there's uh, proper protective equipment. Uh, You know, it it is at school level that many of these decisions must be taken within an overall framework of getting the children back to school. So Mm -hmm. so I'm not particularly myself worried about the uh, failure to publish the report. What I really want to see is schools being helped and assisted from the centre so that in a disaggregated way they can do the right thing for the pupils for whom they are responsible.
4: Mm, I think that's a strange strategy myself, given that um, it it risks, yet again, very muddied recommendations. It's leaving it up to individual schools to try to battle their way through a global health crisis. We've seen the disaster in the US by allowing individual states and then down to local counties to do the same thing. Um, The guidance surely needs to be clear from the top. And then a lot of primary schools, for example, that were allowed to reopen did not at the end of last... uh, academic year, precisely for that reason. It was sort of left in the hands of local decision makers.
2: Well, it was, but things have moved on since then. I don't think the analogy is quite, as you say, with, with the, the very evident difficulties there were between different states in the US. I think, I think that armed with greater knowledge and greater understanding from what happened when we were trying to get children back to school towards the end of the summer term, armed with clear guidance from the centre about the importance of social distancing, the importance of wearing a mask where appropriate, the importance of, of, of washing your hands and so forth. Armed with that cohort of central direction, you can then disaggregate authority to the schools to use their good sense mm-hmm. within within a framework set nationally but administered and directed locally. I think that's that's the right way to proceed. And as I say it's not a perfect stance and there will be there will undoubtedly be difficulties. But it comes against The absolute, in my view, uh, rightly, determination of the government to ensure that this generation of school children get back into school in September, because Mm. otherwise it's going to cause very grave damage to their opportunities in life.
1: Okay, so that's the school's story. I've got to ask you about aid as well as a former International Development Secretary. £20 million is what we're looking at uh, for the situation in Lebanon. Is that going far enough?
2: Well, I think that Lebanon uh, is a a terrible tragedy. Britain has actually been an enormous supporter of Lebanon through the crisis in Syria. It's not often known the extent of Syrians now living in Lebanon. One in three Lebanese is Syrian, and uh, the Lebanese people have shown quite extraordinary generosity, and we've backed that generosity with British taxpayers' money in supporting the Lebanon. Uh, In this dreadful crisis that has erupted with the destruction of the port, Uh, It is right that France should be in the lead. I thought it was very impressive that President Macron went to Beirut uh, swiftly. He is leading an international effort which will be uh, co-run with the United Nations. That's the right thing to do. There's the immediate humanitarian circumstances to be addressed. And then beyond that, there's the wider questions for Lebanese governance and the wider questions for rebuilding. Mm. And Britain has a, a modest role to play in both of those two operations, the short-term humanitarian and the long-term rebuilding, but under UN and French leadership. And, of course, not very far away, we have British military assets in Cyprus, which can deliver logistical support to the humanitarian effort. I think Britain is sending a naval vessel to assist with that. So
4: I think that Britain is is
2: making a commensurate um, contribution for the moment.
4: Okay, so 20 million pounds is enough. The bill, let's put it in context, five to 15 billion dollars. And that's just for rebuilding uh, Beirut after the port explosion. Although I'll give it to you that donors on Sunday with that Macron led initiative only managed to raise 300 million US dollars. So, you know, million versus billion, quite important. But look, let's talk um, more broadly about the aid budget. Oh, yes. Come back to me.
2: Let, 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 let's just deal with that. I mean, there's two different phases to this. There is the immediate humanitarian support, where Britain swiftly uh, gave £5 million and then another £20 million and has offered logistical support from mm. uh, Cyprus. So, so, so that's the immediate. And there's, uh, other countries have also offered uh, considerable amounts of humanitarian support and so, of course, have the surrounding Arab nations. Mm-hmm. The longer-term pledging conferences will need to take place for rebuilding Beirut, which cannot be divorced from the uh, crisis in governance in Lebanon, where the whole government has resigned and where you've got too many factions with allegiances outside the country and not to the country itself. That has to be sorted out. And the international community would be foolish to pledge funds without the commitment from those currently running Lebanon to address these important issues. On the back of addressing that, I'm Mm -hmm. sure more money will be forthcoming, including from Britain.
1: What about DFID? Boris Johnson told you he wouldn't scrap it, and then he did without warning you. You voted for him initially. Has that knocked your trust in him?
2: Well, it's true that I uh, I, I think it's a, a grave error of judgment to scrap uh, DFID, uh, particularly at a time when we're trying to work out through the uh, Defence and Security Review what global Britain is going to mean, and you know, if it was the right thing to do, which I very much doubt in any circumstances, it should surely be on the back of of that, of, of of those discussions and that review, but you know, in politics, there's a limited point in howling at the moon. And I'm now trying to assist the government in making sure that the new department, the new mega department which incorporates development, continues to show the sort of sinews of British leadership, which have been so important in the last 20 years since DFID was founded and before, in alleviating these extremes of poverty, which so disfigure our world. So. You know, the prime minister wishes to change his mind and do this. He's entitled to do that. He's, he's prime minister. The important thing now is not to lose the tremendous British leadership and impact on development, which has made such a difference to the lives of some of the poorest, and most desperate people in the world.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage.
1: Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And we start with an announcement from the government. NHS trusts across England getting £300 million to upgrade facilities ahead of the winter. This is the concern, isn't it, that you could get a second wave. It's going to put pressure on the NHS. So the Prime Minister hoping that this additional cash is going to help hospitals to keep those essential services going and reduce the risk of COVID during the coming months. That follows a, uh, what comes from a £1.5 billion capital building allocation that was set out in June. So it's part of this ring fence money. It comes just days after these stories uh, around uh, thousands of deaths risked if the NHS has to shut down following a mm. second wave. So obviously that's a worst case scenario. It's uh, still pretty daunting reading. That's a warning from doctors and surgeons from a few days ago.
4: Yeah, absolutely, saying that the NHS simply um, cannot ignore other issues um, you know, beyond coronavirus. Also, let's talk about exam results and the fury there. The Scottish First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, has apologised to pupils after a controversial method was used in calculating students' exam results. So Sturgeon said that too much focus was given to the system rather than to individuals, and she said that her Education Secretary would set out a plan to rectify the matter today. This situation is not the fault of students, and so it should not be on students to fix it. That's on us. So with the exams cancelled, the Scottish Qualifications Authority used predicted grades and then downgraded them based on criteria that included the historic performance of schools. So uh, many people highlighted that as uh, being unfair to certain pupils from poorer districts or or, uh, more challenged schools.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Especially if you're a high performing student in a poor school, this mm. thing is really not going to go your way. And then the issue is that on Thursday, we get A level results in Wales, Northern Ireland, and England. And the concern is that we're going to get a repeat of this debacle. Uh, and then this morning, we had UK employment figures for the second quarter, the unemployment rate coming in at 3.9%. Uh, the good news is that it was expected to be worse, but then we had a drop in employment of 220,000 between April and June, the height of the lockdown, really. And that was the biggest fall since the financial crisis. Uh, And then even then, these figures might not give you the full picture because you have to remember that furlough is, in a way, artificially maintaining a lot of jobs that may not exist after that scheme ends. So we can't quite get a Mm. thorough reading just from these numbers alone.
4: Well, that's the question. Is it artificial or isn't it? 9.6 million people have been supported by that furlough scheme since March, and it tapers down at the end of October, at least now. Well, let's delve into the unemployment figures, because, of course, they come just uh, less than two weeks after new lockdown restrictions were imposed across parts of the north of England, with Preston, the latest area, to be added over the weekend. Joining us now is Jay McKenna, who is acting Northwest Regional Secretary for the TUC. Um, Jay, there has been, when I've spoken to people in Manchester and other parts of the north of England, this debate about whether it really is a lockdown or not, whether people are able to uh, travel and go to work, to keep working uh, or not in the north of England. What's your view about how things have actually panned out and how much this has been hampering employment in your area?
3: Well, I I think it's probably somewhere in between the the lockdown we... We know it, you know, we, we've all experienced in the last five to six months and, and, and somewhere back to normality. It it, it probably depends uh, sort of on your own circumstances and what you're trying to do when you go out and about these lockdowns and having big impacts on people, maybe meeting up with friends and family as they were doing so, but, but places still remain open. Uh, you mm. know, people still expect maybe to go back to work. And I think this is the, the challenge for lots of people when we talk about employment, when we talk about lockdown, when we talk about the pandemic, generally is is what is happening and, and having some certainty about what will happen for them and the numbers today on unemployment, you know, nearly three quarters of a million people, uh, mm-hmm. less, less fewer people in work, sorry, than before the pandemic. It, it is a, an issue, I think, for, for people to begin to say, you know, what will this mean for me? What's it going to mean in my day-to-day life? And Will I have a job to go back to? once furlough ends and there's a real need I think for government to act but but as you know I think the big message that's been coming out across the north is clarity about what this means you know the lockdowns that have been entered certainly when it was entered into in Greater Manchester and in parts of West Yorkshire there was real concern about how quickly that had happened and the lack of information available real uncertainty about whether people could go out to to bars and shops and restaurants and, and for, at one stage really late on The message was that no, you couldn't, you know, in families and meeting up with other households, Mm. you couldn't do that. And it actually transpired you could, but but the hospitality industry was reporting that that had a significant impact on them. Now, we want to do this safely, but it is trying to tread this very fine line of, of protecting people's health and maintaining and protecting the economy. You know, it's a difficult path to tread. I'm, I'm sure we're all aware of that. But I think there is a yeah. real need to make sure we get that right, and information no, is key to all of
4: this. Yeah, no, absolutely. Although I do think that the issues around the clarity of the lockdown and the speed of the imposition, obviously different to the loss of jobs. Um, what do you think about the idea of, you know, more support for people who are self-isolating? No doubt that is something that you would like to see you know more assistance for for people in that situation
3: yeah absolutely we've we just yesterday andy burnham uh, and steve robert the metro mayors for, for greater manchester and Liverpool city region launched a campaign Out' mm. to help out at uh, francis o'grady our general secretary and our unions and businesses in in the northwest will support on that because yeah. there is a real issue for people who maybe get a text or a phone call from test and trace maybe if you know being unfortunate to be in a country uh, that's subject to new quarantine rules whilst they're there. We've seen that happen with people who are away in Spain and, no doubt, in other countries recently. Or, you know, someone in their household developed symptoms and the real challenge that's beginning to emerge, and we're speaking to, to workers about this, is they just don't know if they will be able to afford to self-isolate. Two million people in the country don't qualify for statutory sick pay and over seven million only get statutory sick pay. And, you know, beginning of this pandemic, Francis O'Grady Spoke to Matt Hancock on, on BBC Question Time and asked him, could he live on £95 per week? And he admitted he couldn't. And I think it's, you know, bizarre that we we find say that, you know, if the minister in charge of health in this country says he couldn't do it, why would we expect anybody else to be able to do so? So there's a, a push. You know, we want sick pay widened and we want that increased. And the call yesterday was that, you know, this is a civic duty to isolate um, mm-hmm. and other civic duties we undertake are things like jury service and yeah. you get reimbursed for those things. So there is a need to support people to do that so that they can do the right thing because one of the things that the, the report was engaged in Manchester is people are not sharing the contacts of people they've been in contact with when they test positive because there's mm-hmm. a real fear in doing so. They're almost, they're almost dobbing them in. They're almost you know, having to admit that they've mixed with somebody and that person might then have to isolate and loses out on pay that they need to support themselves or their family.
1: Yeah, Jay, I see your point more widely, but should this really apply to people who go on holiday as well? I mean, if you're going abroad, you know there's a risk, especially if you're going somewhere like Spain where the cases have been high. It shouldn't have come as a surprise to anybody that a quarantine requirement was put in there.
3: Well, I think I think there's a difference, isn't that if you're you know, if me or you Seb, are going to go and book a holiday tomorrow and we're going to Spain knowing that in advance, but you know, if we remember what happened in the in the instance of Spain, you know, it was literally I think hours before um, the 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 quarantine rules were going to come into place. You know, people have have followed the advice they've been told and encouraged to get back out there and spend money in the economy. That it's safe to travel to these places. Their flights are on. You know, if you're the, you know mm. like like any of us, you've worked hard, you've saved your money, you've paid for your holiday. You know, you have that thing of well, okay, I'm told it's safe to go, or I don't get my money back if I don't go. You know, you go there and, and then suddenly something changes through no fault of your own. You know, yeah. should you no, be to financial difficulty because of it?
4: Yeah, no, I absolutely hear you, Jay. That Look, that was a shock to the nation, right? And it was kind of the wake-up call that actually what the government had been sort of talking about in th- theory was actually possible in practice and really quite sharpish. So I can understand that people perhaps were caught out with Spain. Now it's a much more real threat. Look. The issue, though, on the back of this is that, you know, the, the cry of um, more money needed is coming up from every sector of the economy, isn't it? Every part of um, you know the UK is in need of more government assistance. The issue is how all of that is going to be paid for. A rise in taxes, in national insurance contributions and so on, on or employment contributions on the back of this. So many possibilities. But that could well be the flip side of, um, of what happens in the UK and I'll say in many other countries, too. It's a huge burden that will come ahead of us, too. What do you think about it?
3: No, you know, just like the crisis, the financial crisis, 2008 and 9. you know, this was a, this is a global crisis. This is affecting us all the same and it needs that, it needs everybody working together. But it together wasn't on the same on scale issues.
4: in terms of cash no, no, it wasn't. from the no, government.
3: No, no, absolutely agree, it wasn't. But I think the lesson we will have learned in the last decade is that, you know, cutting back on our spending, cutting back and trying to, you know, rein in, That mainness in austerity has a negative Mm. impact, and that you know, the wage stagnation we've seen in the last decade that has now borne out in people on zero hours contracts and low pay that you know, sort of being a lag on the economy we've seen in the UK. That is a challenge for us now, and I think there is this thing of we've got to try and support people because what you know, Mm. it is almost this question of what is the alternative. You know, this shouldn't be about choices for people, people are in a very real Uh, present danger from a a virus that, you know, nobody um, predicted. This is unprecedented. And we're trying to find a way through that public health crisis whilst maintaining the economy. You know, we we can't, I don't think, certainly at this stage, be getting into either or choices about what we should be doing. We should be absolutely protecting public health, and we've seen all that messaging around test and trace and, and what's needed to make that a success. Yeah. And that fits alongside this. This is about you know the, the stuff around self isolation support is about giving people confidence because you know let's let's say it was any of us if we went into you know the nearby towns or city centres to where we live or where yeah. wouldn't we like to have that confidence that the person serving us maybe in the coffee shop or in the bar or the restaurant isn't there because they financially have to be but because they know they're well.
2: Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang.